0: Welcome, good morning, happy 3rd of July. My name is Nate Young. I'm one of the elders here at the church and it's my joy and privilege to preach to y'all this weekend. Um, Normally when I'm up here, there's a guitar strapped on me and uh, that's my mode, that's my comfort zone. I hope my mouth still works without it. Uh, We're about to find out, right? Anyways, a little bit about myself. My wife and I, we've been, um, we were on the launch team. We've been here since the beginning. Uh, we're part of the problem. We're part of the reason the church is growing. We had two cute little kids here. Come on, man. Look how cute those kids are, right? You kidding me? So cute. I'm showing people pictures of my kids all the time these days. They're so cute. Uh, We had had our kids here. This church is our family, right? This church has become our our home and our family, and we have our best friends in the world here. Um, And like that video we just watched, some of my best friends have come via my DNA group. I have great friends in my DNA group. I love my DNA group. My wife loves my DNA group. The restaurant breakfast time loves my DNA group. <laughs> Love some of y'all's DNA groups, too. I've seen y'all there. Um, in any case, you know, DNA groups are great. they're wonderful. but for those of us who have tried them or who are in them, we know that they can be kind of tricky at times, right? They're hard to get right. Likewise, friendships can be a bit tricky. Friendships are, are hard to get right. But if we get them right, the positive effect on our lives is incalculable. We're talking about friendship today. we're just continuing on in our uh, series on David and looking at probably this most famous friendship of all time. I don't know of one we're talking about 3,000 years later other than Jonathan and David. We're gonna be looking at, at their friendship. So you guys, if you want to go ahead and get to 1 Samuel 18, I'll meet you there in a few minutes. But there's consensus out there on the importance of friendship, right? There's a lot out there. There's been all these studies done, mental and emotional, you know, health benefits. I mean, and you even know this yourself, right? You know, you care very deeply about the types of friends your kids are making, right? Those of us who are parents, very deeply. And, and one study I saw this, I thought this was interesting. As you age, the effect of social ties on extending lifespan is twice as powerful as that of exercising. So maybe go to the gym with a friend. Maybe that's better altogether. You know, I don't know. But in any case, we know that friendships are important, but there's, there's not a lot of consensus on like, like how do we do them? Right, there's not a lot out there. There's marriage conferences and there's leadership conferences and work conferences and parenting conferences, but not friend conferences, right? Ridiculous, no one's ever been to a friend conference. And I think the reason why there's not a lot out there on how to do them is because we don't even know what it means anymore. Like to say that you're my friend is a bit of a squishy thing to say now. Did did you click the button on Facebook? Do we enjoy time together? Um, Are we golfing buddies? Is it something deeper? Is there more commitment attached? I think we all know that, yes, it is a good friendship, but how much deeper on the spectrum? What are we aiming for? Uh, we don't know, I think we don't know. So in times, in topics where there is confusion about what to shoot for, it is helpful to look to the Bible to see if it says anything about that topic. It's not culturally conditioned by our cultural moment. That's wacko from time to time, right? So that's what we're gonna do today. We're just gonna look to the, to the scripture. Here's where we're going today. We're gonna talk about the necessity of friendship according to the Bible. Then we're gonna look at the narrative of David and Jonathan's most famous friendship. And then we're just gonna circle back and look at the ingredients of the friendship in Jonathan, David that we see and see if we can apply anything helpful to our lives. So necessity of friendship, narrative of friendship, ingredients of friendship. I know, I know Kyle would have alliterated that. He would have found a word that starts with an N, not ingredients. And it is a requirement of preaching here, let me let you know. I will alliterate later, okay? So if you're uncomfortable, it's coming. Anyways, necessity of friendship according to the Bible. We first see it in design, right? Look at God, look at the Trinity. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with Himself. The Godhead is a friendship, would be one way to look at it. And He creates man in His image and puts him in a garden, perfect garden, perfect relationship with God but there's a malady in creation. What is it? Man doesn't have a friend, like a human friend. The creation of Eve speaks to the the fact that she was even created, that that man needs a friend, right? A wife, yeah, but more fundamental than that, a friend. A friend. And and as we're looking at the garden, a, a helpful thing to think about, I think in our culture, in our culture, people will trample on friendships and trample on relationships in order to climb up the ladder of success more money, a promotion, whatever the case may be. But that's foolishness, right? Because you're not gonna get so high that it's the Garden of Eden. And even in the Garden of Eden, it's not enough without a friend to share it with. So don't do that. If you've got a great friendship, don't trample it to get up the ladder. We also see biblically that friendship is essential to get us through the hard times in life. Friendship is essential to get us through the hard times in life. And you think like, "Eh, that seems like a lot essential. I mean, what about just, I don't know, a great relationship with my spouse and my pets and whatever AI is suggesting something to me to watch on Netflix tonight to to drown it all out. Well, okay, the third ridiculous, you need more than that, right? But let's talk about the second one, pets. Let's talk about that. Seriously, some of y'all love your pets, right? We love our pets. Let's look back at the garden. Adam's in a garden, he's naming animals. He doesn't have a friend. It's not enough. We need more than that. So let's talk about the spouse. Let's talk about the spouse. Is that enough to get, th- get you through life's hard times? Yeah, I think so. But what is it about the spouse? What gets you through the cancer diagnosis? Is it the sexual chemistry? It's the friendship, right? We know this. A good marriage is a good friendship. And a good friendship is a good marriage. So we know this, we know this. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 4, says this very clearly. 9 and 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We need a friend, we need a fellow, we need somebody that when we fall will lift us up. We need friends to get us through the hard times in life. And that, that's the occasion of David and Jonathan's friendship. David is about to enter his you know, most dangerous season of his life. And that's when the friendship with Jonathan starts and it carries for a few years to get him through that most dangerous season of his life. So I want us to look at this. Um, Let's look at the friendship of Jonathan and David. Let's start with who even is Jonathan, right? Who is Jonathan? We haven't talked about him much these last couple weeks. Jonathan is Saul's son. He's Prince in Israel. He's heir to the throne. Um, He's a good guy. We We first meet Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 where He's kind of, he, he's on the battlefield and he's in this tactically precarious situation where there's a garrison of Philistines that has the high ground and Jonathan and his armor bearer are alone on the low ground. And he says, God, I'm trusting you for a victory here for your glory, for your people. Overtakes this garrison of Philistines, God comes through, gives him the victory, right? So he's courageous, he's a man of great faith. He's a war hero, it's in the Bible. I mean, that, that event is in the Bible, great guy. How do Jonathan and David meet? We don't know exactly the start of their friendship the text doesn't say, but it stands to reason that it's just when they're spending a lot of time together, when David is welcomed into Saul's court as his musician and armor bearer before the David and Goliath episode. We don't know how long that is, probably a couple of years. And that's how your friendships start, right? That's how my friendships start, just in situations where we're spending time with each other, at the workplace, at school, in church, on the sports team, whatever. That's the soil to, to start a friendship, but something, very unique and interesting happens in chapter 18, verse one. And here's where we're gonna start reading. Very interesting. This is the first time the Bible explicitly talks about their friendship. Right after the David and Goliath episode, it says this, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, David speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Okay, whoa, real intense, real fast, right? It like in an instant, as soon as in this moment, this, they have this conversation, the souls being knit together, this is very strong language. And it's kind of like at first glance, what's going on here? This seems interesting. What's going on here? Well, I think C.S. Lewis says something to us that helps us uh, to understand what's going on here. C.S. Lewis says that friendship can go to a deeper level. A deeper level can be discovered when two people with similar passions or experiences create a bond around those passions or experiences. Can I let's think about what just happened? David just got done trusting God for an individual military victory on the battlefield, explicit about his faith. God gives him the victory for his glory and his people's good. Like the varsity version of what Jonathan had just done in chapter 14. And they have this you too moment. And Jonathan's like, oh, you too? Like I knew you believed in God, but I didn't know you believed in him like that. Now I see your faith in action on the battlefield and he's coming through for you too. And they start this fast, tight friendship bond. And then that's the faith component, but then the military component, I think it's hard to overstate that as well. And those of us who haven't been in active combat, me, I don't think we get this, but there's been studies done on this and they even use like familial language, the band of brothers, the bond between soldiers, right? And one study I saw that was done shows that Libyan frontline soldiers in the 2011 conflict, they surveyed them. 45% of them said that their bonds with their fellow frontline soldiers were stronger than their own family bonds. Very interesting. So it's a tight bond. It's a faith-based and a military-based bond, I think, that Jonathan and David have. Okay, then let's let's see what happens after that. This bond happens, verse two. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay, so he's making a covenant and giving him some things. We'll come back to that. Just, he's committing to him. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It's hard for us again, to overstate the meteoric rise to fame that David has after David and Goliath. I was trying to think of like a modern day example of something similar. I couldn't think of one. So here's a hypothetical. Think Justin Bieber. Why Justin Bieber? Well, David is the King's musician. Is there a more famous musician than the King's musician in that time? I don't know, probably not. So think Justin Bieber circa like, I don't know, 2003, 2004, in the wake of 9-11, where it's like the war on terror and Osama bin Laden is public enemy number one. Imagine if Justin Bieber were to land a plane in the mall of America and walk out by himself holding the disembodied head of Osama bin Laden, (laughs) right? I mean, it's goofy, right? But epic rise to fame. And I think it's kind of like that. So David gets wildly famous in an instant, is made a general in the army. God's given him great success and everybody loves him. And publicly he's being praised but privately he's in peril. Why? Because as fast as his fame is rising, Saul's jealousy is rising. And then there's one critical part where the women are singing songs and they're saying Saul's killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul's jealousy turns him murderous. In this season, Jonathan contains the evil for David between his dad and his best friend, David. And Saul, multiple times, mostly privately, Because publicly, he's a political ally actually. But privately, he's trying to kill, he's trying to murder David. And in this season, Jonathan's running interference and he's David's safe space and he's David's confidant. And it kind of boils and it kind of grows. And then it grows into chapter 20, which is where we're gonna pick up again, if you wanna flip over there. Chapter 20, verse one, David comes and he meets Jonathan in private, in secret. He's kind of on the run at this point. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, we're starting in verse one, from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. Saul's very secretive, interesting. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you. That's what friends do, right? That's what friends do. In the time of need, hey, what do you need? I'll do it for you. They don't distance themselves from weakness. They step into it. How can I help? So they, Jonathan and David talk about a plan to discern together what Saul's true intentions are. Pick it back up in 14. Jonathan says, verse 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again for his love, by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So they make another covenant together, a second friend covenant. And then they go and execute kind of the secret mission where David's in hiding and Jonathan learns that, okay, indeed my dad, he does actually want to kill you. That's what his true intentions are. And they get back together. They meet together in secret again. And this is where we'll kind of finish the narrative in verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground about three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most, Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. And this is where their friendship ends in tears. Kind of tragically, Jonathan goes back to be with his dad and David's on the run. And Jonathan ends up dying with his dad in battle. They never see each other again. This is their friendship. This is their friendship. What do we see in this friendship? What do we see in their friendship? What qualities, what ingredients that might be helpful for us do we see in the friendship of Jonathan and David? Well, the first one I think jumps completely off the page, right, it couldn't be more obvious. Could use a lot of words for it, but I'm gonna say constancy, constancy, commitment, loyalty, friends stick. Friends show up when you need them. They're constant, they're there when you need them. Like they're covenantal even. In, in the case of Jonathan and David, they make two friend covenants. This isn't a normal thing to do, but they do this, right? And it's, it's very intense. We don't have time to talk about what exactly a covenant is in Hebrew culture, but suffice it to say, very intense commitment where if one of the two parties breaks the covenant, blood will be shed. That's how intense it is. It's a very intense commitment. And they make it to each other twice. In the first covenant, we read about it back in chapter 18. The first covenant, the substance of it is essentially Jonathan recognizes We don't know at which point exactly this happens, but Jonathan recognizes the throne, the heir to the throne is actually you, David, not me. I recognize that God, the God that I love has anointed you, not me, and I'm giving you my princely items. He gave him his sword and his bow and his belt and his armor in this first covenant. And he's committing to, hey, David, I'm not fighting you for the throne. I'm committed to serve you as king. That's the first covenant. That's how committed he was. And then in the second covenant, It's a few years later, it's kind of in this last meeting they have together in the second covenant. You know, Saul has set up, it's a contested throne situation where there's one throne and there's two families and it's a Harry Potter style, neither can live while the other survives situation, right? That's what's going on here. And they don't know what the next step is, but they commit to, hey, whatever happens here, we're gonna be committed to each other and each other's families, no matter what happens at the end of all this. Normally, what would happen is one family gets the throne and they eliminate entirely the other family. So this is why they commit to being there for each other's families. And the commitment, it's interesting, right? Because we look at commitment like this and we're like, that doesn't comport with anything I see anywhere in my world and culture and my life. So let's slow down for just a second and talk about this, right? We have commitment issues in our culture, do we not? There are commitment issues in our culture. I've Done a lot of thinking about this and trying to think about like, why is that? Like, why is the commitment culture that we're living in or the lack of commitment culture, why does it exist? I think it's about this simple. Our culture is preaching a lie and it's very loud and it's everywhere. And it's saying the way you get happy, like this is how you get happy by cutting all commitments to anyone but yourself. That's how you get happy. Cut all commitments to anyone but yourself. And if you believe that lie, you have to view all relationships from a consumer perspective. You have to, that's how you have to show up. David and Jonathan are covenantal. But if you believe the lie, you have to show up in every relationship as a consumer. It's interesting. Consumer relationships and covenantal relationships, they've been present in all cultures and consumer relationships aren't bad. There's a place for them. The place is called the marketplace. That's where a consumer, relationship is supposed to be. And normally that's where it's been confined to in lots of cultures. But in our culture, this consumer mindset has broke free from the marketplace and has affected and infected my life and your life in all these places where it shouldn't be. The family, our friendships, the way we relate to church, the way we relate to people at church, our civic relationships, the consumer mindset has infiltrated all those places that it shouldn't be there. Let me just... Define terms here for a second. I think it's clear what I'm trying to say, but I wanna be really clear about what I'm trying to say because I think it's helpful for consumer relationships. So here's some markers of consumer relationships. Your cost benefit calculator is always going. It's always going when you show up in a consumer relationship. Do benefits outweigh cost? If so, I'm engaging. If not, I'm out of here. Your primary concern is the benefit of yourself in a consumer relationship. You know this, we know this, right? How do you show up to Walmart? Thinking about Walmart when you walk into Walmart? You want the good of Walmart when you go in there? No, it's ridiculous, right? The the way you show up is I am primarily concerned about me. And if Walmart is dumb enough to do something, like run such a good sale that they're losing money on, I'm buying all that stuff, right? That's how you show up. That's how consumers show up. Concerned about themselves. This is very helpful. Consumers show up thinking, what do I need? How can you help? That's how they show up. That's how they show up. They show up thinking about how they can use the giftedness of the other for their own advantage. They show up thinking about how can I distance myself from your weakness? If I see some weakness, space, space. Most importantly, consumers get to leave. There's often return policies and they always get to leave. And again, it's not wrong in the marketplace but it's wrong in the family and it's wrong in friendships. And I said, it's infected all these places in our culture and our lives, not just our culture, our lives where it shouldn't be. And one of the places I wanna talk about just to kind of really drive it home is is the family, right? Marriage. How how has the consumer mindset infected our marriages? Well, the most obvious way, the most obvious way is divorce, right? It's a return policy. You get to run the cost benefit on the back end after making a purchase and make a return if, if it doesn't work out for you, right? Divorce. But I was surprised to find out, thought this was very interesting. Divorce rates are at a 50 year low right now, 39% down from 50% in the 70s. Okay, that sounds good. That sounds like progress, right? But here's what I think is happening. Marriage rates are at an all time low, all time low. 50 years ago, if you wanted a normal adult romantic relationship, even if you didn't want the commitment part, like you kind of had to get married. And then if you decided, actually, you know what? Never mind. You got rid of the commitment part and you got divorced. But nowadays you don't have to get married, right? There's a buffet of options in our culture for normal adult romantic relationships. Like like when I was young, when I was dating my wife, we dated all through undergrad. (laughs) These are my options that I was aware of at least, trying to be dating her, dating her, engaged, married. And we went through those steps. I don't know, maybe like idiots two weeks after we graduated we got married, we just celebrated 10 years. So yeah, you know, it's going great. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but now there's all these options and kids are saying things these days. I don't even know what they're talking, and that's not when I'm getting old, right? When you start saying kids are saying things these days, that's how they are getting old. I don't know what they're talking about. And instead of talking to one, I Googled what are different types of relationships. Here's what I found, an article entitled, what are the different types of relationships verified by a medical doctor. I don't know how, whatever, they're qualified somehow. Some of you are medical. I'm not trying to offend you, but anyways. (laughs) Talking, dating, boyfriend, girlfriend, casual relationship, friends with benefits, partners, domestic partners, open relationships, polyamory. Jeez, man. There's a buffet, right? There's a buffet and you can go shopping for which option you want. And it's mitigate commitment. It's cut the commitment. It's trade the wife and kids for moving in together and getting a dog. And at some point it breaks down, it falls apart. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's the consumer mindset. So now that was the counter vision. The covenantal mindset, the covenantal approach to friendships. It's literally just the opposite, right? And, And I'm gonna read it again back conversely because I think it's that helpful. Covenantally minded people show up without the cost benefit calculator going. That's how they show up. It's not going because they're staying, whether it's, Cost exceed benefit or benefit exceed cost. They show up as often as possible, primarily concerned with the benefit of the other person. That's how covenantal people show up. This is so helpful. I think these questions are so helpful. This next one, covenantally minded people show up asking these questions. What do you need? How can I help? What do you need? How can I, help? I mean, look, we're all needy and need dead right? I mean, you can't always show up all the time asking that question, but do you ever show up asking those questions or are you always showing up? What do I need? How can you help? Like in your marriage, let's talk about marriage. You can apply this whole sermon to marriage. A good friendship is a good marriage. A good marriage is a good friendship. Like, how did you show up yesterday? Did you show up to your weekend? Hey, I need to go golfing. You can help by watching the kids for six hours today again. I mean, Sorry if that's offensive, but I mean, do we ever show up And look, it? just I'm just trying to help. It goes better when two married people are showing up, both of them. What do you need? How can I help? If that's happening, you can probably still go golfing sometimes, right? <laughs> Anyways, it, I'm just trying to help. And then finally, there are no return policies. You don't get to leave. You don't get to leave. So what kind of friend are you? Are you covenantal? Here's one good diagnostic question for us to ask. Who is around in the hard times when there's nothing to gain from being around you? Those are your friends. Those are your real friends. And conversely, who are you around in their hard times when there's nothing to gain from being around them? You're a real friend to them. You're a real friend to them. Look, in the good times, everybody's around, right? Everybody, the consumer and the covenantally minded person, both around. But in the hard times, consumer relationships evaporate and covenantal friendships are the only ones there. Like you see this all the time with the professional athletes. Professional athletes draft in the first round, young guys in their 20s, move to a new big city, sign a contract worth tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, whatever the case may be. Lots of new friends, but they have a sneaking suspicion, none of them are their friends. And that's why you hear them clinging to, in some of these interviews, they're like high school guys that they used to go around with. And there's some of their childhood relationships because they don't know who their real friends are. But you know who knows who the real friends are? The bedridden person, they know. It's the only people that are around. It's the only people that are around. You show up for your friends when they're in need and there's nothing to gain. Like we're good friends, right? When, uh, when there's something fun on the social calendar, we have a great time together. But all of a sudden, when you need help moving on the weekend, and it's 95 degrees outside, I'm not as good a friend anymore, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I do this, I do this. I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this. So I had a friend in college. Um, it was the first year after college actually. And he's a good friend, man. And his dad died, tragically. He was hit, he was riding his bike and hit by a drunk driver, died instantly. Tragic situation. I was having lunch with him about a month after that happened, it might've been more like two months after that happened. And uh, we were just talking, I was just checking in with him a little bit. And he said, hey, thanks, man. We were actually on staff. I don't know if I said this, we were on staff together at the same church. I was interning at my church. He said, thanks. Nobody else on staff here has checked in with me about this in the last month or two. Not great, right? Not great. And I wasn't even being a good friend. It had been a month or two. Are we distancing ourselves from weaknesses? Okay, caveat here to this constancy one. Do you need to have deep, the deepest level of commitment with everybody that we're associated with, no. Right, safety tip, don't do that. We shouldn't be doing that. But we can expect to have as many close covenantal friends as we are a close covenantal friend too. And if we're always showing up, what do I need? How can you help? We can expect that they're showing up the same way. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's a biblical principle, right? And if we show up that way, we just need to be careful because when we're really needy, they might take advantage of return policy. Friends are constant. Another ingredient that we see in the life of Jonathan and David is friends are transparent. Friends open up to each other. They let each other in. Friends are transparent. We see this with Jonathan and David in multiple places. It's all over the place, a couple of them. Back at the beginning of chapter 18, verse one, where it talks about the soul tie, You know, the souls being united and loving as he loves him as his own soul, that whole thing. There's a lot of commentary about what that means. And there's not consensus about it but it at least means that they were exposing the deep parts of their souls to one another. They're being transparent. They're being transparent. And then they're very transparent in that last interaction where David's confiding in Jonathan. And you know, at the end of it, they're weeping and kissing together. I mean, these guys are like, dude, they're military war heroes, political figures, weeping and kissing and like letting each other in. I mean, could you imagine our political figures doing this as friends? It's very unusual, it's very unusual, but we see that they're doing this and this is an ingredient in their friendship. Kids are doing this all the time, right? Kids are letting each other in all the time and they're starting friendships a lot better than us as adults, aren't they? Right, I mean, like my daughter, right? I have a three-year-old, I love her to death, man, but she's letting people in all the time. We're in the Panera parking lot and uh, she's running away. I'm like, hey, it's dangerous, don't run the par-. I mean, this happens all the time. Don't run away in the parking lot. All right, you're gonna have a consequence. No Daniel Tiger, can't watch Daniel Tiger for the rest of the day. She probably wasn't gonna watch it anyways, right? But anyway, she has big feelings about it. Oh no, I don't, I wanna watch Daniel Tiger. She's crying, she's screaming at the top of her lungs. She doesn't have the capacity or the filter to not be transparent, right? But us as adults, oh, we're real good at it. We're real good at not being transparent. We're really good at it. But to the extent we're doing this, we're not good friends, because friends let each other in. Friends let each other in. Why don't we do this? I'm gonna ask this question kind of a lot in this section because I think it's helpful for us. I think, man, I'm really bad at this, and I think a lot of us are really bad at this, opening up, even with our closest friends. Why don't we do this? Well, one, the consumer mindset. We're selling, I'm a good time, and I want you to pay me by liking me. And I'd rather you like fake me than real me. The consumer mindset, that's not a friendship. That's not a real friendship. We're also doing this, I think. And this one's like a little darker, but I think this is a reason because we like how it feels when we sense that somebody is jealous of us. Like we like that. We don't talk about it. But if we sense that somebody is looking at us and thinking, oh, that guy, he looks like he's got it all together. Looks like he's got a great walk with the Lord, great family, good job, whatever the case may be. I wish I could trade my life with that guy's life. If we sense that, we like how that feels. That's not friendship. Friends don't do that. Friends aren't seeking to impress each other. And Jonathan and David are not doing this in their friendship. Friends let each other into their deepest thoughts and feelings. They let let each other into their decision-making process. We see David do this with Jonathan, right? He has a decision to make about how to handle Saul. And uh, he goes, Jonathan, about it. He goes, Jonathan, they... And it's not just, hey, comment on this decision-making process. They actually make a plan together about how to handle Saul. Friends let each other in on their decision-making process. I think we don't do this a lot of times because we just don't want other people to know that we lack wisdom, right? We just don't want other people to know that, hey, I have no idea what's going on. We'd rather roll the dice and see if it works out for us. How are we doing this? I think we're doing this all the time, guys. But here's a couple examples. I think one place is some of you have an elaborate decision-making process about a romantic partner that you're, or the, the process of how to identify and date romantic partners. It's elaborate, it's well thought out, you're executing it and no one has a clue the criteria and how you're doing that. Are you making good decisions? I hope so, but I don't know. That's kind of the point, nobody knows, I hope so. It's possible that the butterflies in your stomach, the way that person makes you feel, might be at a conflict of interest with what's actually good for you though. So it would be helpful to just let in some good friends to that process, right? Just let them in, just talk to them about it. Another place I think we do this. Oh man, we're doing this all the time, guys. The older we get, we're doing this all the time. Money, immense secrecy around money. The opposite of transparency is secrecy. And we're doing this all the time. Like for example, some of y'all just bought a bigger house or bought a new car on a max leverage car loan or are financing some extent of your lifestyle on credit card debt. And am I saying wrong, wrong, wrong? No, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that. But how do you know if it's wrong? Is it just you and your brain trying to figure it out and trying to do it? Because if you're keeping that process completely secret for your entire life, things in a secret garden tend to grow mutant. They tend to grow in a bad direction eventually. They do. This leads us to our last one. Last way friends let each other in. Friends let each other into their flaws. David's doing this to Jonathan. He's like, hey, your dad's trying to kill me. Have I done something wrong? Tell me, I wanna know. Have I done something wrong? This is confession and accountability. Um, Hebrews 3, 13, such a helpful verse. This is such a good verse. It says, exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This verse implies, guys, listen to this. This is so important. This verse implies that if we're not talking to each other about how we're doing, our sin's growing up and we don't know. That's the deceitfulness part. Lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin, lest I be hardened by my sin. And things that are secret, things that are not talked about, tend to grow mutant. It's like, you guys seen Stranger Things, anybody? Couple of people? right, two people. I'm sure more than two people have seen it. Anyways, Stranger Things, season two. Uh, Dustin, he's got that cute little pet dart, right? See, I know something was seen. Yeah, <laughs> that cute little pet dart. It's not a cute pet, right? But he thinks it is, and he's feeding it candy bars, and he's keeping it secret in his room. But it's a Demogorgon, right? It grows up into a monster. It eats his cat. That's not a cute pet. Some of us have sin in our lives that we think is a cute pet, and we're feeding it in our room, and nobody knows, and it's growing up. And it's not going to be good for us. It's not going to be good for us. So what would be a helpful thing to do about that? Exhort each other. And I would recommend giving out what I'm going to call hunting licenses. Guys, if you have a friendship where you feel like you can do this, it's so valuable. Don't give it up. Don't give it up. Giving out some hunting licenses. This is... This is what a hunting license is. It says, hey, I wanna be humble enough to admit that in the wild forest of my life, there is sin lurking and growing that I'm not aware of that you might be able to see. You have a hunting license. It's open season, you can come hunting and you can pull the trigger and kill the sin. Couple rules of engagement for giving these things out. (laughs) They're dangerous, right? Hunting licenses are dangerous. First rule, actually give them out. Like be explicit about it. Don't say, oh yeah, I got a couple guys, they know they can talk to me about my stuff. No, they don't, no they don't, right? Would you feel more comfortable talking with somebody if they explicitly invite you into that or if they don't explicitly invite you in? Obviously, if they do, right? So actually give them out, that's the first rule. Second rule, when a friend pulls the trigger, you don't get to be like, oh no, that's not what's going on here and how dare you? Don't approach me like that about that, how dare you? They'll never pull the trigger again. They'll never pull the trigger again. And they're not trying to kill you, man. They're trying to kill your sin. That's a good friend that's willing to do that. That's a good friend. You might think they're trying to kill you because of how one with your sin you are as you grew it up in secret and it's wrapping itself around you. And your friend's trying to help you when they do that. I hope not many of us have had this experience, but Maybe some of us have. We have like this 10, 15 year sin struggle that you realize way too late, and you didn't ever talk with anybody about it, and it almost blew up your life, or it did blow up your life, or it's about to blow up your life. I think, this is important, I think we can avoid that situation from ever happening. I actually think it's foolproof. If we give out some of these hunting licenses and are responsible, when our friends come and use them. Like think about David. I wonder if David and Bathsheba ever would have happened if Jonathan was still around. I don't know, maybe, probably not. A guy who knew his soul as his own soul probably would have said, hey man, not good for you. You need to be at war with the guys. That's where you need to be right now. And it probably never would have happened. Safety tip. Transparency is scary, right? This stuff is hard. It's hard, it's hard. Do we let everybody into every layer of everything? No, absolutely not. We only, the people who get invitations to the lower stuff, were responsible at, you know, levels one, two, and three in the basement. That's who gets invited deeper into the basement, right? Okay, I've thought about, at this point, how you guys might be feeling. New guy up here. <laughs> Talking about friendship, easy, easy. And now like 35 minutes into it, we're okay. The deep, transparent, mutual knowing of myself and exposing of myself and the self-sacrificial constancy. I don't know, man, that sounds pretty hard. Or some of you are like, I tried that. I tried to let somebody in, didn't go great. Not doing that again, no way, not doing that again. You have the desire, maybe, to be a constant and transparent friend, but you don't have the power to actually do it. Some of you guys are more introspective than others. And you've looked deep down in there and you've seen some stuff and it grosses you out. And you don't wanna let anybody else see that stuff. Because you're afraid that if they see it, they're gonna be like, no thanks, I'm out of here. And some of you are not introspective for precisely the same reason because you have a sneaking suspicion, something is gross in there and you don't wanna look at it and you don't want anybody else to look at it. You don't have the power to be a transparent, constant friend because you have not experienced transparent, constant friendship. You haven't been on the other side of it where somebody gets close to you and they see it and they stay. This is only possible, you guys know where I'm going with this. This is only possible fully, completely with one person and his name is Jesus Christ. Some of you don't know him. I wanna tell you about him. Jesus Christ gets close. He gets close. And when he gets close, he sees the gross stuff. And he doesn't say, nevermind, gross, I'm out of here, nope, this is what he does, he sees all of it, he sees you down there with it, he takes all of it, he puts it on his back, he gets on a tree, he spreads his arms out, they get nailed down, his feet get nailed down, he bears the wrath of God for it, because it is gross, and he doesn't get down, he stays, he's the friend who stays, he's constant, he could, he could've When it was getting hard on the cross, he could have said, "Never mind, con legions of angels, I'm out of here. He didn't, he stayed. You're saved by the friend who stays. And he's so transparent, he's so open to you. I mean, his arms were nailed open. Could they be more open? He's so transparent, he's so open to us. Some of you guys are like, I tried friendship like that. I don't wanna do it again. Jesus is saying, try it again. Try it with me. It's gonna go better this time. There's another group of us in here who, you're saved. You know Jesus. He's your savior. But you don't know his friendship where you need it the most. There are floors in your basement that he doesn't have access to. Do you know his friendship, for example? In the car on the way home from your boyfriend's house after going too far physically with him again. Knowing he's not the right guy and you probably need to end it. And you're ashamed and you're just crying, having a hard time in the car. Do you know his friendship right then? That's when he wants to be your friend, right then, right in the car, right then. That's when he wants to be your friend. He's not, you're not in the car and he's not over here like, okay. Get better, fix that, have a good month, break up with him and then we can be friends again. Nope, this is what he does. You write about it in Ecclesiastes. He walks over and he picks you up. When you fall down, he picks you up. He's your friend in it. He already knows, tell him, he already knows. He wore it on his back on the cross. Tell him, talk to him about it. Experience that level of his friendship. Do you know his friendship with the coworker who you have feelings for that are stronger than feelings you've had for your wife in a decade? And you feel so ashamed, you're a community group leader, right? You shouldn't be having those feelings. You're ashamed and you hate it. And you kind of love it at the same time. But you ain't talking to anybody about it. You're not talking about about it to Jesus. And he's like, no, I wanna be your friend right then. Right then, that's when he wants to be your friend. On the way into the office, at the office, afterwards, right then, that's when he wants to be your friend. Do you know his friendship in these places? You're gonna find that what he does is he doesn't come over and say gross. He says, I already bore this on the cross and we're gonna get through this. That's what he says. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes with me? (sighs) Jesus Christ. Before you called us, before we even existed, you knew all of it. All of it. All of it. And still you loved. And still you stay. And still you made a covenant, a friend covenant with us in your own blood and it ain't gonna be broken not going anywhere help me help your church help these people help us to experience the deeper layers and the deeper deeper levels of your friendship and as we experience it would you create in us the power to be that type of constant transparent friend with our friends we love you praise in your name Jesus amen